0: morning, please. Turn in your Bibles to Psalms chapter 31. I'm going to deal with four passages of Scripture this morning to try to get a point across to each one of us of what God is trying to teach us in how we live every day and how we get along with each other and what responsibilities we have toward Him and to ourselves. Every single promise I know in God's word also has a clause. It says, if you love me, do this. And somewhere else, somewhere in this book, it says, and if you don't do that, then this is what I'm going to (laughs) do. So there's incentive, not just our own good nature, but incentive for each one of us to do and to live like God wants us to or else suffer the consequences. And sometimes they're very, very serious. The title of this message today is Guilt and Sickness and how that plays a part. Now, for some of you who hadn't been here for the last couple of three weeks, we've been talking about the conscience, that thing that God gave Adam and Eve that made them hid, made them hide, I'm sorry, Whenever they found out that they had done something that God wasn't happy with. And that conscience had been placed in all of us to warn us of when we we're doing things that God doesn't approve of. Now, to recap one small thing everybody's got a right and wrong. And we're concerned about God's right and wrong. Because God, it says in the 14th chapter of Romans, will make us suffer when we do something that we think is wrong, even if he doesn't think it's wrong. We suffer because we choose to do something that we think is wrong, even if it's not. So that is the scrutiny from which we are assessed by our Lord as we live each day. There is a little something I heard maybe 40 years ago, I don't know. But I think it's an important, uh, maybe a little parable, if you will, of how God deals with us in His Word. It said that there was a fellow that was in business that he had to travel. He was a single man, he didn't have a family, he's a young man, and he traveled all over the country doing his business. And he had to stay in motels and boarding houses in a lot of towns. And when he'd get to a town, if he was through with his business in the cool of the afternoon, sometimes he'd just walk through that town to observe what the town was like. Well, he was doing that one afternoon in a small country town. And he came up on a vacant lot with a bunch of folks playing ball and he walked over and was standing there and folks spoke to him and he spoke to them and he was watching them play ball. He was a sports fan. He knew the rules. So when one of them invited him to play on the team, he said he'd enjoy that. So when it came his time to bat, there was about a 12, 13-year-old boy pitching and he underhanded him a ball and... He hit it way over the street, way out there. And he lit out around the bases. And when he got back to home plate, he was standing there feeling pretty good about himself. He just made a home run. But he's got a bunch of people around him saying, run around the bases again, run around them again, run around them again. That ball's coming back in from outfield. He couldn't understand what was going on. He was trying to find out what they were talking about and they threw the ball in from across the street over there and they got him out and he didn't understand. And while he was standing there trying to figure out what was going on, there was a young man who stepped up and said, well, here's the way we play. We have the same people every day, every Sunday or every Saturday or whatever, playing ball here and we, because the field is so small. We've developed a set of rules that make it fair to everybody because when we're playing with kids and grown-ups and whenever a fella can stand up and hit a ball like you can, we've just got a rule that you've got to run around the bases twice to get a home run. He said, but wait a minute now, that's not fair. And the fella said, well, fair or not, that's the way we do it right here. So I'm to tell you something, folks. There's a lot of times in our relationship with God we say, well, Lord, that's not fair. I'm suffering and it's not fair. But I'm going to tell you something that I've learned. God doesn't always play by your rules. And if you're going to get anywhere with him and make those home runs, you're going to have to play by his rules, whatever they happen to be. Here's a rule book right here. And that's what we're dealing with today. The sickness that comes from guilt and the guilt that comes from making actions against our conscience. The conscience being a warning device to keep us straight. And everybody's got one And when we get born again, when we become a Christian, the Holy Spirit starts working on our conscience to give us a Jesus conscience, a God conscience, and not just a good and bad conscience. Because you see, the problem is, with everybody in this room, I guarantee you, there is a whole different set of rights and wrongs for every one of us. We saw that a couple of weeks ago in Hebrews when it talked about, that when people are discerning and reasoning out whether something is right or wrong, there is a group of people that excuses the people for doing what they did because they agree with them that it's okay. But there's another group of people that was aware of their actions that are accusing them. So that's where we find ourselves. Whether you believe things are right or wrong, you're either excusing people for what they do or accusing them for what they do. And that's where we find ourselves. Now, Jesus prayed in the 17th chapter of John that we would all come to the unity of the Spirit. We'd all believe the same way. And that's where he's going with all of us. And the more we meet, and the more we study, and the more we hear, and the more we read Scripture, the closer we all get to each, each other as far as our beliefs are concerned. Until that day when we're face to face with him and we will all be in unity with one another, we'll all believe the same way. But you see, with everybody in Scripture, everybody above the law, and everybody messed up, that is the very nature of being a human being, you're going to mess up. It's called sin, and we're going to do it. There was one man in the Bible that was referred to as a man after God's own heart. I've heard a couple of sermons on that expression, and to my knowledge, to this point, the Bible does not differentiate between him and anybody else. So what made him a man after God's own heart? I don't know. That was God's way of describing him. Maybe that when you identified him with a sin in his life, he immediately submissively repented and fell on his knees and said, I'm sorry, Lord, I shouldn't have done it. And he did some pretty bad things too, but yet he was a man after God's own heart. So when we look at chapter 31 of Psalms, a book that that David wrote, we'll see what he says about his own experiences in verse 9. Have mercy on me, O Lord, David says, for I am in trouble. Mine eye is consumed with grief, yea, my soul and my belly. Now that's 16th century English terminology for I'm messed up mentally and physically. My soul and my belly is in a mess. For my life is spent with grief and my years with sighing. My strength faileth because of mine iniquity and my bones are consumed. David says, I am in bad shape and it's all because of my sin. I was a reproach among all mine enemies, but especially among my neighbors and a fear to mine acquaintances. They that did see me outside fled for me. His people who knew him were aware of his sin. After a bit, they all knew it. Moses says to his people, Israel, be sure your sins will find you out. God is not going to hold your hand and help you hide a sin. He's not going to do it. I stand here with my hand up testifying. I know personally he won't do that because I've tried to hide sin just like everybody else does, I guess. And he won't hide sin for you. He's going to expose you in your sin. And eventually he'll do it. Sometimes it takes a while. But he says all his friends wouldn't have anything to do with him. And I don't know why. I've seen some people say that, that he had done something so bad that they didn't want to be around him when God struck him with lightning. I don't know about that. But anyway, the people who knew that David had sinned was having nothing to do with it. And he's saying that. I was a reproach among all my enemies, he said, but especially among my neighbors and friends. They was all talking about him. He's not a good fellow. I don't care if he is a king of Israel. He's not a good man because he's sin. Look over at chapter 32, right to the right in my book. In verse 1, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. David, that old prophet, shook his finger in David's face and gave him that parable about the king, a rich man who had a lot of sheep, and he had a guest over, and instead of killing one of his own lambs to feed his guest. He went out and took a poor man's lamb that lived close to him that didn't have the strength to fight back and he just took his lamb and killed it for his guests to eat. And the prophet came to David and asked him, what do you think needs to be done with a person like that? He said, you give me his name and I'll go out and slay him myself. And the book said it shook that old crooked finger at him and said, you're the man. And David didn't think everybody knew about his sin, but they did. And when the prophet brought it to his attention, he fell on his knees and asked forgiveness. This is after that point. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity. In other words, doesn't hold a grudge against somebody because of their sin. God forgets it as soon as you ask forgiveness for it. He's forgotten about it and in whose spirit there is no guile or no deceit. This deceit thing is something I've learned that is bigger than I thought it was. It's about people hiding who they really are. And they put on a face, a public face, to keep people from finding out exactly who they are and what's wrong with them. And God calls him a hypocrite because it's dishonest to live a life in front of people that dictates you're one person and inside of you, you're not. He says in verse 3, when I kept silence, my bones grew old through my roaring all the day long. He said even his bones were groaning. For day and night thy hand was heavy upon me. My moisture is turned into the drought of summer. His vitality, his spirit, has gone into nothing. It's like the desert, it's just dry. And he has no vitality, no life, no desire to want to go and do anything because he hid his sin and his body reacted while he was his sin was hidden to where he was a sick man. Guilt will do that to you. So many people in the church are dealing with guilt because of something they've done in the past. And you know a Christian And even a churchgoer, someone who has heard sermons, ought to know more about sin than anybody else because this thing that we do with Jesus Christ and the church is all about sin. If we didn't have sin, there wouldn't be any use in us doing anything but going fishing on the river on Sunday morning. So we ought to be experts about that. But then he shows when he confessed... He tells again about how bad it was. And then he says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. So he's understanding how bad it was then and how good it is now. If you will, please turn over to James chapter (coughs) 5. The lesson here, people, is to ask for immediate forgiveness. If we do that, if we ask for forgiveness enough because of how much we sin and how much we sin and don't even realize we're sinning, that's what it said about 1 John 1, 9. When we ask for forgiveness for those things we know about, he forgives us for all of our sin, even the things that we don't know about. I thank the Lord for that. Because I I have seen it explained to me how a person can sin and not know they're sinning. And it's possible. It's very easy, in fact. So I thank him for automatically forgiving me for those things that I don't do that that, that are right or that I do that are wrong, even when I don't know about them. But in James chapter 5, Here's the New Testament account about people who are sick. Starting with verse 13. Is there any among you afflicted? That word translated means suffering. Any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is there any Mary? Let him sing psalms, Sing songs. Is any sick among you? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now there's one point I'd like to make about that verse. It says what we're to do if we find ourselves sick is call the leaders of the church and have tell them about it and have them pray over us. And then it says go take our medicine. This is not a ceremonial anointing just to put a little oil on somebody's head to say that's part of the ceremony. That's not what it means. This word here anointing him with oil is medicinal word. It's a word used for taking medicine. So those people who believe that all you've got to do to get over a sickness is to pray, that takes care of them because it says you pray that you will be healed, but then you take your medicine too. Go to the doctor. Let him do what he can do because God can bless him and his working with you trying to heal you from your sickness. Verse 15. and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. And the Lord shall raise him up, and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. I was studying this week, Incompetent to Counsel, uh, a book by J. Adams, one of the many books by J. Adams, a born-again psychiatrist, who has best information I've ever seen on counseling Christians from the Bible. He was a psychiatrist in Maryland that, that was born again, and he started taking his wisdom out of the Bible instead of from the four gentlemen who, who started the science of psychiatry, that all four were atheists. So you wonder what has atheists got to say to help me as a Christian when I'm trying to do what God wants me to do and a fellow's advising me who don't even believe there's such a thing as a God. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick and the Lord shall raise him up and if he have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Now he made that point that all of our sickness is not directly related to our sins or a sin. Some of them are, but all of them aren't. But in the process of asking for forgiveness so that we might be healed, we ask forgiveness for the sins that we may have committed that made us sick, that resulted in our sickness because only to be forgiven would be to be healed. But it says, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. Now most of you know about the boy, the young preacher boy that I told you about, an ordained minister, nice wife, nice child. I mean, they were some of the best people you've ever seen in your life. His mama got cancer, and he prayed that God would heal her, and he used this verse, and the prayer of faith shall save the sick. He was a member of a former church of mine. His mother died, and he quit the ministry. He hated God, and he wouldn't have anything to do with him or the church or church people for years. So I want to show you something about this verse. This verse, I mean, it, it's, it's something that people who take one verse out of the scripture and develop a belief on it without taking all the other verses and believing them also. Because there's another verse that refers to this right here that keeps you from saying, well, I prayed my, my faith, I've got enough faith, and I prayed that that person would be healed, and they're going to be healed. Turn, if you will, please, To 1 John chapter 5, and let's look at another principle of God. Along with the prayer of faith, shall save the sick. Chapter 5 of 1 John and verse 13. John says these things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life and that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God. Now, why would he say that again? I mean, if we're born again, why would he repeat that to us to remind us? And I think it's for this reason maybe. I don't know for sure. I don't know the mind of God on everything unless he says so. But it may be on this one right here that people are praying the prayer of faith just like this boy did. His prayer didn't come true and he started hating God because of it. He lost his mother. So he says, These things have I written unto you that ye may believe on the name of the Son of God so you won't do something like that. And look at the next verse. And this is the confidence that we have in God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petition that we desire of him. Now, I've learned to turn these two verses around and teach them backwards. Because here's the point. Verse 15. We know that we have the petitions that we desire of him. When we pray, we have the confidence that what we pray is going to be answered, okay? That's our goal, anytime we pray. And if we know that he hears us, whatsoever we ask, we know that we have it. So the catch is, we can get what we pray for and know that we're going to get it if we know God hears our prayer. So how do you know whether or not he hears your prayer? Well, you know, there's one place in Psalms that said, if you get a bad thought in your mind, and you leave it there and don't get it out of your mind, when you pray, I won't even hear you, God says. So that's one thing, but all over the scripture, he's got things that say, I won't hear your prayers, because you're acting like this, or you're doing this thing or that other thing. That he turns his face from us, Isaiah said, because of our sin. He won't hear us. But look at this. Verse 14, last part of the verse, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So here's what's going on. If you're going to pray that your mother doesn't die of cancer, you better know, if you leave that prayer with confidence, that she will not die, you better know it's God's will that she's not going to die. <laughs> now let me th- throw this at you because it's happened to me and I understand that you may have been put in this situation too. Suppose you went into a prayer and you prayed it and it was a big prayer request for you. And you prayed it saying, I've got enough faith to make this prayer come true. And it didn't come true. What happens? What happens? You've been there. What happens? We lose a little bit of our faith. (laughs) Because we thought that's what he was going to do. We thought our Bible says, if I have faith and pray, it's going to happen. But you see, this clause is there. And this is the confidence that we have in him that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So you see, what this says is, if we pray a prayer that is not God's will, he never even hears it. You say, well, how does that happen? In Romans chapter 8, verse 26, it tells us that when we pray to heaven, the Holy Spirit that dwells within us takes that prayer Changes it where it's acceptable to God in the throne room of heaven and delivers it to God. If we are sinning to where God has said, if you do this, I will not hear you, the Holy Spirit doesn't even take that prayer to heaven. So God never hears it, so it won't be answered. That's what he's saying here. So there's clauses. There's always clauses it says that we're supposed to take care of the needy and the weak. But he says in another place, if you stop your ear at the cry of the poor, when you cry out, I won't hear you. So you see, there's a lot of promises all through this scripture, and I'm going to tell you, I was a nut about promises. I wanted to know as many of them as I could because I felt like every time I learned another promise, that was something God said he would do if I did. So all I had to do was take care of my end and know I was going to get a blessing from God. But then I got to finding all these causes. If I walk past a man who needs something and I won't give him something, then when I cry out to God, Lord, I need so and so, he won't hear me. And that's the relationship we have with our God. He's not some old big fat grandfather that's going to give us everything we want, like Santa Claus. He's not. Because there are conditions that have to be met in order for us to receive the blessings that God has promised us. Because somewhere else in the world, they all not jumbled up in one place, so you'll know. But everywhere that he gives us a promise that he will do this, he says, if you'll do that. So what we see here, and this is the confidence that we have in our God, that if he hears our prayer, he'll answer. But we've got to pray in his will and know That is his will before he will give it to us. And we can confidently say, I know I'm going to get an answer to this prayer because God said so. And the prayer of faith shall save the sick, and the Lord shall raise him up. And if we have committed sins, they shall be forgiven him. Then he says in verse 16, Confess your faults one to another. Don't hide your sins from each other. Let your friends and your church folks in their casual conversations with you make sure that they understand that you don't claim to be perfect. That you mess up just like everybody else does and you're not using it for an excuse. How many times have I heard myself? Well, you know, you must have messed up doing that right there. Well, I know, you know, we all have sinned and come short of it. Yeah, I know that. The Bible says that. But that's not to be used for an excuse when you choose not to do right because there was no sacrifice in the Old Testament for sins that you chose to do. I didn't know that for years the sacrifice that they had made reference to in the Old Testament was for those sins that you did accidentally. Confess your faults one to another and pray for one another that ye may be healed. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Now that is an interesting thing to say right there because after he's told us this, and I happen to know about that other scripture over there, and fit it into this one right here. He said, You got to understand something. Yes, I won't hear your prayer if it's not in my will. And so if I don't hear your prayer, then I can't answer it. But you got to understand something. The effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Okay, am I a righteous man? If you're a born-again believer, you are because the Bible says you are. So if I'm a Christian, that's what covers the righteous man part and the effectual fervent prayer. If I am sweating to get this prayer answered, I mean, this prayer, I'm not just throwing something up. I'm serious about this thing. It's serious with me, and I'm praying. Maybe one of my children is sick or something, and I mean, it's a big deal with me, and I want them healed. So the effectual, those things that make things work, the effectual prayer, the prayer that makes things work, and fervent, the one that has intensity from the prayer, availeth much. So after he's taught us this and then showed us the clause, you may wonder if it's going to work. He says over here, but you've got to understand. Because you are a Christian, I do special things for you when you pray. You're one of my children. And you know how fathers are about children. Don't you realize, he said in Matthew, that I do way more good for you than your earthly father does. They had to do the best they knew how. Me, I know how to treat you perfect. Perfect. And that's the way I treat you. If you will live like I ask you to live and be a testimony in front of other people, saved and unsaved. Because it says, you know, over in the qualifications for a pastor, be a man that is well thought of by them or outside the church. Even one of the qualifications for a preacher is it the community, the unsaved community out there that's outside the church thinks well of him. So he's got to be an honest guy, not just an honest preacher. He's got to live his life in an honest manner that gives him a good testimony. Availeth much. Turn, if you will, please. This is the last one. First Corinthians chapter 11. And we'll do a a verse or a series of verses, four or five, that are should be very recognizable to anybody who has ever gone through communion of the Lord's Supper. But I have read, I read this at every Lord's Supper that we have, but you would be surprised at how many people, that are older people even, 50s, 60s, 70s, that have been participating in the Lord's Supper all their life and never heard this scripture, never heard it. And they'll come up and say, I've never heard that scripture you read. But this is serious. This is serious business about doing business with the Lord. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11 in verse 26. You remember, it's quoted every time we have the Lord's Supper. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you do show the Lord's death till he come. So we do the Lord's Supper to remember Jesus and what he did for us. That's the the reason he says we do it. Every time we do it, we remember Jesus. Wherefore? In other words because of this whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord unworthily shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. What does it mean unworthily? What it means is unforgiven. If you partake of the Lord's supper with known sin in your life when you reflect do I have any sin that I have not asked forgiveness for, and you remember that sin, you better ask forgiveness for it right then. Somebody says, well, how many, what? I mean, you know, there's sins that we might have forgotten about. God won't hold you responsible for that. But if you remember it, you need to ask forgiveness for it. There's something else we learned. We talked about it with the Bill Gothard that we went to. He said, if you remember any sin against any person, you ought to figure out a way to go back and try to straighten that out. Don't have anybody walking up and down the road or in any kind of a, especially a church situation, but any kind of public thing that has got something against you because of offenses that you've done to them. Go to them and ask their forgiveness. So you can operate looking around at everybody and don't know one single person that you've ever had a problem with. Now, some people you can't do that with. But I tell you this, if you're doing a ministry for God and you have told the Lord, if you'll show me who I need to witness to, I will tell them about the gospel of Jesus Christ. You're going to be faced with somebody and God says, go talk to them. And when you see them, you're going to remember, you and them had a problem several years ago and you're not going to be able to talk to them. So you ask forgiveness. You clear yourself to where you're open to everybody. And that's what he says here. That if you take of the Lord's Supper and you remember a sin that you did with somebody else and you haven't asked forgiveness for it, me, I'd set the cup down and I'd wait till I went back and straightened it out and then I would come and take communion. Y'all see where Nancy Pelosi was refused for not allowed by her bishop to take communion because of her stance on abortion. I thought that was an interesting news thing this week. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of that bread and drink of the cup. So you look at yourself first. You examine yourself and see, have I got a sin that I haven't covered? Have I got a sin that I know of that I haven't asked forgiveness for? For he that eateth and drinketh unworthily eateth and drinketh damnation to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. You don't have enough respect for Jesus to partake of the Lord's Supper knowing that he said, Ask forgiveness for your sins, and you haven't done it? God considers that an act of damnation. For this cause, many are weak and sickly among you, and many sleep. They're dead. There are sick folks among God's children, us, because they participated in the Lord's Supper unworthily, without, with unforgiven and unconfessed sin on their heart. And many are dead. And you know what that means? God will make you sick because you sin, and some of you He'll kill. That is a very alive Bible principle. For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. God says, if you think of it, He says up there, but let every man examine himself. So look at your own life and see have you got something that you haven't confessed? For when we are judged, we are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. God says, and I don't understand all of this, but I know what it says. He says that he does not want to send us to hell with the folks that don't believe. So that we look at ourselves and we try to correct all the sins we know about in us Because if we have to wait and let God judge us and say, you're going to suffer for this, I've learned that I'm not near as hard on myself as God is on me. I'm just telling you. I pet myself. If I say, yes, I have sinned and Lord, I shouldn't have done it. And you know, but no, 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 no. Fall down and ask forgiveness now, right now. Don't don't live with it another day. Because if God decides to come in and chastise me for what the wrong I've been doing, it's going to be a whole lot worse than if I did something to myself. And especially just asking forgiveness. But see, the point I'm trying to make is this. That's the way we're supposed to live. Every Christian is supposed to live that way. Constantly, every day, judging himself and saying, am I living like God wants me to live? And if I'm not, to so ask forgiveness. All we have to do is ask forgiveness. And if it involves somebody else, go to them and ask forgiveness of them. So they'll know that we're clean of it. For if we should judge ourselves, we'd not be judged by God. And when we are judged of God, We are chastened of the Lord that we should not be condemned with the world. There's another one of those clauses. If you claim to belong to Jesus Christ, you claim to be a member of the family of God, and you go around here living with sin sin after sin after sin after sin, the scripture says, We should not be condemned with the world. (laughs) I don't want to sin so much and live a life that is so bad that they might scoop me up in that bunch that they're going to hell with and I get caught in in the deal. I don't understand it. I'll admit to you I don't. But that's what he says. So, the life of a Christian should be that we evaluate ourselves every day that we won't wind up like David with Bathsheba, that we won't wind up like these other people who have sins after sin after sin and they never stop to ask forgiveness for it because that is where the peace comes from, that's where the blessed life comes from, and that's where the joy that is full comes from, peace, And joy and a blessed life comes from living the way God has outlined from these four pieces of scripture. If we correct ourselves, we won't be chastened by God with the world Because the sinners out there, the unsaved people around us, they're being hammered by God every day. What did David say? Your hand was heavy on me, God. We don't want to live like them. And you say, well, that's one reason that it was enticing for me to accept Jesus as my Savior and become a Christian because I want to live that blessed life. I do too. But this is one thing that will keep us from living it. And all of us should not want God to have to chasten us for the sin in our life before we've asked forgiveness for it. Once we've asked forgiveness, He forgets about it as far as east is from west. And if somebody, one of your neighbors, that wants, like I said, my neighbors reproach, they didn't even like me. David said. So if they walk up and tap God on the shoulder and say, did you know what your kid down there did last week, two weeks ago, three weeks ago? And he said, I don't believe I know what you're talking about. (laughs) Why? Because he asked forgiveness for it and he don't remember it anymore. You remember it because you don't have the godly strength to do like he does. But he has strength enough to say if I forget it, he'll forget it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. I thank you for your pure instruction for us. Straightforward kind of talk that gives us an option of either doing what you tell us to do or choose not to. And you even give us the results either way. If we choose to live for you and be obedient, and if we choose not to live for you and be disobedient. So, Lord, I thank you for this information because that leaves it up to me then. And I thank you for that. Lord, I praise you for not only your power and your might and your wisdom, but the fact that you explain it to us in a way we can understand it so we'll know what to do. So forgive us our sins, Lord. Continue to do that. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.